This is ContraZoom. Where we go back and forth about film. This is part two of our Oscar episode, the second part in our Oscar series, where we're profiling uh, all the best picture winners decade by decade. Uh, And in last week's episode, we went through numbers 10 through 6, which was How Green Was My Valley, Going My Way, Miss Miniver, Gone with the Wind, and Best Years of Our Lives. Uh, And and from that, we're now going to go through our top five films of this 10-year span and, uh, and talk about that. Yes, and we have an exciting one because this is a film that was a bit lower in terms of ratings when I looked it up initially. It was getting like 7s out of 10s, 8s out of 10s. And it ended up being one of my absolute favorites of this, of this segment. It is the surprisingly terrific hit, Gentleman's Agreement. It's a 1947 film directed by Elia Kazan, which stars a Gregory Peck, which I, I personally feel like this was his lead into his classic role as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird, where Gregory Peck in this film plays a journalist who's trying to write about Judaism and how it's being frowned upon and basically scowled at back in the 40s. And he does this by about a quarter of the way through the film, deciding he's going to pretend to be Jewish himself and seeing the world around him change. Instead of it being this in-your-face, drastic kind of film, it's a tasteful film that looks at the ugly side of this kind of thing, but also looks at the good side and how it can show one's humble realization of how ugly humanity can be towards somebody just because they are of a different belief. And I think we're on the same page here. This was quite a surprising film because this isn't one that was widely acclaimed in terms of the other, some of the other movies we're going to look into. In fact, if anything, How Green Is My Valley was probably listed higher than this was. And in the end, I thought this was easily one of the more powerful films out of the 10 we had to watch. Yeah, I, I think it is extremely powerful. You know, you you just read the byline about what it's about and you think it's going to be very ham-fisted and over the top and beating you over your head and being like, no, anti-Semitism is bad. Well, of course we know it's bad, but how, where does it come from and how does it manifest into people like they're they're dealing with racism and, and things like that? And I think it does an absolutely fantastic job and I do feel it is a bit of a precursor for To Kill a Mockingbird. As far as you know, they're they're fairly similar in dealing with things about where does the root of hatred come from. And I think you, you sort of get a real glimpse of it when, um, you know, uh, Gregory Peck has a young son and uh, he tells his son, to basically say, you know, if anyone asks what religion we are, just say that your father is Jewish, you know, not too over the top and things like that. And this kid gets picked on and beat up because of it. And you just see the absurdity of hating someone because they're different than you. And, you know, you feel for this kid because he's crying because he's got a black eye and he got all beat up. And his ego is even bruised and things like that. And, and he's asking... Why, why is it possible that, you know, someone can hate you for something so 
so silly what, that because they're Jewish or, you know, if they're black or whatever, whatever you want to insert here sort of thing. 1947, you know, you're still dealing with a very uh, white Hollywood. So, you know, Jewish is, you know, you could substitute it for any race or culture today and it would be the exact same thing. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I, what I love about this movie is it has a lot of these, a lot of these discussions, but I love that there's also no clear answer because there isn't this, this holy figure that says, this is how things should be done. How dare you not do exactly what Gregory Peck does? Because nobody in this film is entirely right. One of my favorite parts was that scene you explained with the, with the child coming back and being upset that everybody was yelling out these anti-Semitic slurs at him, which he's never even heard before. You know, Gregory Peck and his love interest, played by Dorothy McGuire, they both have completely different approaches to this specific scenario. And that is something that ends up making the two characters feud. And in the end, who knows who's entirely right? We side a little bit with Gregory Peck because the movie's based more around him. But in the end, nobody's entirely right. Do you, like, what do you do to get a child to learn about these kinds of issues appropriately? Yes, Gregory Peck's take on this is the best because you're sticking to your guns and you're not going to lie about your heritage just because people are teasing you. But at the same time, you need less of a blunt approach and something that'll get kids who don't know any better to not attack you so full head on. Nobody is entirely right in this film, except for possibly one person, which we both agree is a terrific character played by John Garfield, who is an actual Jewish person in this film who is comedic relief for a good chunk of it. He's this lovable guy, but when it gets down to the nitty gritty, he's the guy where Gregory Peck turns around with his clothes ripped and, and his hair in a mess. And he says, Oh my God, it's, it's hell out there. What do I do? And John Garfield sits there clean after he's dusted himself off and basically says, this is what it's like. You get used to it. Yeah. You have to get used to it. It is a great, great character that John Garfield plays perfectly he garfield is definitely a real force of nature it's a bit of a shame that he's sort of a underrated actor as far as you know legacies go i've seen him in a couple different things and he, he's great in everything that he does um he's in um the postman always rings twice i believe uh the original one uh and, and that he's really great in it too. He's sort of a, a interesting character to to sort of look up on on your own. So so if you want anyone wants to do some outside reading, just read John Garfield's IMDb bio and trivia. And there's some really unique stuff to say about him that sort of I I feel really imbues his performances and he brings a lot to his characters. Um, I thought another interesting thing was uh, the. The, the Jew on Jew racism, I guess, is the best, <laughs> the easiest way to say it. Um, you know, things like uh, when, when um, Gregory Peck is pretending to be Jewish, no one knows except for a select few people that he isn't. So his secretary that is assigned is Jewish. 
And when she finds about his assignment, she goes, oh, yeah, well, you know, I'm a part of the club, too. Uh, and she's worried about rocking the boat and they don't want to let the bad ones in and things like that. And you're just sort of aghast that people would say that. And she's like, well, you know, the, you know, the loudmouth types, the ones that give all, all the Jewish people the bad names, you know, those type. We don't want those people around. Now, do we? And that sort of thing. Yeah, which is awful because this is the kind of person that let's say the child actually was Jewish. This is the kind of person who might have been affected by the Dorothy McGuire character where she said, back down, don't let your heritage be too well known so you won't be picked on. It's that kind of person who will grow up into this person that says, yes, these stereotypes are real. I, I happen to be Jewish, but I'm not like that, which in itself is really bad and possibly even worse because that's your own kind. That's, that's your own that's your own religion that you're basically indirectly passively beating up yourself. And it's not even a, uh, like a blatant hatred. It's, it's a shrugging passed off as such that, you know, it, it's, it's meant to be apologetic. Like I'm not racist, but nothing that happens or comes after that will ever, ever be acceptable. And this is, this is quite similar. Yeah, um, I thought the the romantic scenes, the romance scenes between uh, Peck and McGuire's character were were pretty forced. Obviously, you, you sort of you sort of needed that through line in the plot to kind of connect the the rich upper class people with the with the middle class writer sort of thing. But I didn't think they had any real chemistry. Um, what about you? Yeah, the one thing I didn't like was the fact that they had to shove in this this ending where, you know, the two get back together. And it shouldn't have been like that because, you know, the chemistry was drifting the other way. It was a negative reaction. And I thought that was acceptable enough because that's how life is. You know a person until you really know a person. And that's when you discover that you didn't really know them at all. you know, and. I know it was old Hollywood back then, and maybe they had to put people back together. Otherwise, it would have been like this big riot, and the theater would have been burned down. I don't know. But, you know, that did lower a few points for me because I, I felt the film was stronger with them being distant. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just one of those things where you, you, you understand the point of it, but it's it's probably just something that maybe just doesn't age too well. Um, uh, you know, you don't want to keep harping on on the stuff that worked, but stuff like the shame that was felt at the the restricted hotel it was a real gut punch because you know the Peck's character he want to talk about his honeymoon about this hotel, and they're like, "Well, we can't go there, you know. It's uh, restricted, you know, without actually saying what that means." And he goes to confront them to see because he wants them to say it to his face because it's not an official policy; it's more of an unofficial policy sort of thing. And you know, him being like, "Do you allow Jews?" And they're like, "Well, is it because you don't want to be around any Jewish people, or is it because you yourself are Jewish?" And he's like, "No, no, no, no. Just answer my question. Do you allow Jews?" And, and that sort of roundabout sort of circus performance was it was absolutely disgusting to watch because you know there was 
many places that were like that, you know, this place that felt that they were too good to be surrounded with these dirty Jewish people and things like that. And you just have to like be so frustrated and upset that people like that actually exist. And in fact, probably still do exist. Yeah. It's interesting that the movie's called gentlemen's agreement because the agreement's basically let's agree to disagree and not talk about this at all, which is, is awful. And it's basically something like this where, somebody who's pushing things aside is just as bad as those who are blatantly out there with their racism or anti-Semitism. Because if you have to juggle an idea and not just outright say, no, we don't reject anybody, come right on in. If you have to juggle and say, well, um, gee, I, I don't know. You're manipulative in a sense that you can't even admit that you're a hateful person. And I love the fact that this movie just shows all sorts of people of all walks of life, which... Um, I think you'd agree our next film actually goes into. Do you want to go into that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you Can't Take It With You is a mostly comedy, but a little bit of drama film uh, directed by F- Frank Capra, who is most well known for uh, It's a Wonderful Life. And it's it's actually quite a bit like It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, it's about a, man, a, a young man who is... Uh, played by uh, James Stewart, who comes from a very well-off family, falls in love with this, you know, lower middle-class woman who's got this crazy eccentric family. Uh, And it's one of those films that you sort of describe it. It sounds pretty schmaltzy and, you know, like ho-hum. But I thought it aged very well, and I really enjoyed just about everything about it. It's kind of hard to explain other than the fact that, you know, um, rich family doesn't want their son dating someone from a lower class that's basically the whole point of the movie yeah because you saw the movie before i did this time around and you went into this huge thing where you said i can't spoil i can't spoil but this caught me by surprise and yeah this is the last film in our podcast uh both this and gentlemen's agreement i would say the two that really caught me off guard the most um i started watching you can't take it with you and i said okay i i'm i'm lost already this, this family is so over the top. This guy's shooting off fireworks. This girl's dancing around like a toy ballerina. Like everything was just so bizarre. And I said, okay, let's, let's give it some patience. This is the same guy who did it happen one night. Let's, let's see where this goes. And it ends up going into such a place where I felt awful for being so judgmental and saying, wow, okay, maybe this family's not that hokey after all. I feel like a dick. And it's, it's a charming film. It's got wit. But at the end of it, when it gets serious, it's got heart. And that's why it's so strong, because it laughs at itself, but not in a degrading way. It laughs at itself and it says, well, nobody's perfect, neither are we. And I love almost all of the characters. I'll, I'll get into that in a second. I love almost all of the characters, because you finally see a lot of humility with some of them. You see some people who are too hard on themselves, getting a little bit of confidence and standing up for what they believe in and not seeing themselves as degrading society there's a lot of turning around in this film the upper going down and the, and the lower going up who's strong nobody's strong who's equal we all are but we can't just see it now the only person i was kind of iffy on was the rich mother who was this snooty oh this lower class can't be with us the entire film and i don't think she ever comes around but apart from that hiccup of a character I think you would agree that the the array of characters was pretty well thought out. Yeah, it really was. And I think 
I don't know that the, the, the household they're called the, the Vanderhoffs is, is so wistful. You, you wish it was real and that you could be there and, and live there. And it's, it's pure chaos in, in the best possible way that you can't help, but like smile and, and enjoy what's going on. Um, all the craziness, all the zaniness, it kind of works. Like, you know, it takes a little bit to kind of get into. You're just like, okay, all right, all right. And then you're just like, of course, they're going to do little things like, you know, use a kitten as a paperweight. Something as innocuous as that becomes an adorable little moment that's, you know, just a just a, a short little thing that you just have to take notice of and be like, that's, I like these guys. Um, I Also, you know, it's kind of hard to talk about this film as far as a bit of a analytical about the way it's made because there isn't a lot going on plot wise. Um, you know, there, there's some interesting libertarian politics going on where the, the elder Vanderhoof who's, uh, who's played by Lionel Barrymore, uh, questions why he has to pay his taxes and that he thinks they're they're bad even though it's it's done a bit in jest it's sort of sort of interesting seeing libertarian politics being made in a hollywood film in 1938 where i'm not too familiar with the history of libertarianism but it's still kind of odd to see it there because i view it as a as a fairly uh recent political phenomenon even though i know it's not yeah it was interesting because i feel like now, when I, I think you'll feel the same way when we watch it. We didn't get like this big sense of power or anything. We just thought, okay, here's a guy who doesn't do his taxes. That that's one of the reasons why maybe the Kirby's will see him as goofy, you know. But back then, maybe it was this very striking thing where people would go, "Why he doesn't pay his taxes? That's awful," you know. Maybe back then it was a lot more of a side of a side splitter where you know. You're you're with the richer the richer family because how dare this guy not pay taxes? Whereas with us, it was more of a goofy thing. So maybe the maybe how jarring it was with the politics hasn't been retained, but maybe some of the notions have been because I, I I'm sure you know people personally who have that same sensibility now, just because just out of laziness, not necessarily out of some political say that they have. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. It's sort of interesting because near the end, uh, the rich family, the poor family, they end up getting arrested um, due to, you know, basically a big misunderstanding. And they have um, the two elder male figures sort of locked in the same cell so that they can kind of confront each other face to face and arguing, you know, the value of money and the purpose of life, I think was really well done. And they're both very well acted scenes. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who the name of the father is. Um, Anthony, Edward Arnold? Ed, yeah, sorry, Edward Arnold, not someone I'm, I'm terribly familiar with, but I thought the two of them bounced off each other very well. Uh, and it wasn't, it wasn't caricatures and that you sort of gain to the meat of who these people are. And then later on when they're uh, in, in court to sort of contest these false arrests that was set up as a bit of a sting by the rich family that they inadvertently got trapped into uh, there. There's a ton of chaos because you know, you have this, the judge and the things like that are, are ready to side with the rich family, but the whole community has turned out to support 
this uh, eccentric family because they do so much selfless deeds for everyone in their neighborhood and community. And it's sort of this reverse to the beginning where the chaos is beautiful and funny and, and loving, where this sort of chaos is very ugly and and it's kind of almost like a horror movie and you just want it to be over and and you you hate it uh so it's a really good contrast of of sort of the same sort of things done with very different results yeah the jail scene is significant because that's where the title of the film comes from where um Lionel Barrymore's character says you can't take that with you referring to money and and fortune you can't take that with you to your grave now what can you take with you? What makes you powerful? Your fortune and your hierarchy? Or does your your spot as a citizen? And I think, unlike Gentleman's Agreement, where it's a little bit ambiguous, I think You Can't Take It With You is a lot more defined with what it's trying to say. It's trying to say that being a good person, no matter how goofy or silly you are, is what makes you rich, not your money. And you saw how much pull they had in court. Whereas when the cops came over, they, I loved that part, by the way, because every silly little thing ended up being significant to this. Why, why were these loud noises going off? You know, uh, why was this found here? Why are you here? And just so much of it fell into place as to why, um, the Vanderhoofs got into trouble for no particular reason. It was silly. And, you know, in the actual courtroom, they had all this power because that's when society stepped in and not authoritative figures who respect one another. This is when society stepped in and they said, no, these people are innocent. They've done nothing wrong. This is just a case of the rich trying to get richer. That's all it is. And you saw you saw how much true power there was, even though in the end, the rich technically win. But they don't really. They don't really because... Even the biggest of of the 1% monsters can sometimes turn around and say, I finally realized what they were saying by you need to connect with people and not with yourself. Yeah. This, is, this was a movie where I, there is a ton of parallels with um, uh, It's a Wonderful Life. You know, it's very easy to see how it almost seems like it's a bit of a remake. Um, it's a Wonderful Life may be a better overall film as far as structure and the way it's shot but i i enjoy you can't take it with you a bit more uh it's sort of interesting to sort of see the role reversals where lionel barrymore in this plays the affable happy-go-lucky uh older man whereas in uh it's a wonderful life he plays the cantankerous old man who is ready to destroy the town on uh the whims of his uh banking wants uh, so that's sort of interesting. I also really like how we're, there's quite a few movies in this decade where the title of the movie sort of is a bit of a play on words very cleverly. And uh, and once you sort of think about it and you see it, it sort of completely changes the tone. You can't take it with you. Sounds like a delightful romp. But when you, you know what it's about, where you can't take your money and your power to the grave it means absolutely nothing and it's sort of the same with the best years of our lives in uh, miss miniver and, and things like that whereas um going my way is so in your face and has no subtlety whatsoever <laughs> exactly but it's a great lead-in to our next film which from here on in our top three 
we figured would be good, but perhaps some of these three went even above our expectations. This interestingly titled film is directed by Billy Wilder, who we'll be seeing again at least once later on. He directed Double Indemnity, so it's nice to see that he, one of his films won here, which another film also won later on, but this is a film of his, despite him being one of my favorite directors, I have not actually seen yet until this. The Lost Weekend, its name is, is interesting because it was supposed to actually be called The Last Weekend. Well, that's, the book was supposed to be called that, but it had a typo in its name. It was kind of left as such. And looking at it now, both names actually work very well because what is this really? Is this The Weekend? Is this the weekend an alcoholic lost due to his addictions? Or is this the last weekend because this could be the end of his life or the end of his addiction, whichever wins first? This is a very, very powerful film about self-struggle. And you see all of this done at the hand of Ray Milland at, with a terrific, terrific performance. There's great directing. There's great writing. There's great acting. Everything about this is so powerful in an era where we saw wars we saw distraught we saw all of these big themes sometimes man's own ambitions and passions are enough to destroy their own lives so the lost weekend what a great film what did you think it's basically a one-man show of Ray Millen's performance. And, and, you know, Tour de Force gets kind of thrown around a lot, but it really is. Uh, and Billy Wilder has to be one of my favorite directors. A movie that we're going to talk about in a future episode is not only one of my favorites, but is probably considered one of the greatest films of all time. Um, you know, he's so good at genre bending himself um right from the get-go every time you know don the main character thinks about drinking there's a bit of a hitchcockian music swell like it's a bit of a thriller like he views this all as a game how is he going to get his next drink where's his next fix going to come from it's all life and death and it's it's shot in such a great way that you're you're a bit on a bit on the edge of your seat and you sort of get a bit of cold sweats and be like oh okay when, when's this guy gonna get the next drink okay come on guys come on let's, let's speed it up how's it gonna do what's he gonna do is he gonna pass out oh my gosh i'm getting a little worried for him and then you know when he has that that drink you you can't help but feel a little bit relieved and be like ah oh. And then you think of the absurdity of such a thing. This man is an alcoholic, ruining his life, ruining the people around him, their lives, those that he loves. He's pushing them away. Yet you can't help but be slightly relieved the fact that he's able to have a shot. It's absolute craziness. Yeah, it's interesting because one of the first things we see when this film starts is the fact that Don has this bottle hanging off a string outside of the window so nobody that he lives with or is friends with can see this. And that should have been a sign off the bat, but I kind of just shrugged it off because Philly Wilder, as you said, he, he combines genres. I mean, Some Like It Hot is both hilarious but also pretty thrilling at times. You know, Sunset Boulevard is very heavy and and very ugly, but at the same time, it's got a grace to it, even though it's very mentally crazy. And you can say this about so many other films of his, Sabrina, um, Double Indemnity as well. So with The Lost Weekend, I thought this was another possible genre, Ben, where, oh, aha, uh-huh, 
he likes his drink, it's out the window. But the more you see, and the crazier he gets, he breaks out in hives. He's barely able to walk off a drink, never mind on it. That's when you look back at that scene and you go, well, damn, this, this actually isn't funny at all. And even though I, one of the very few criticisms I have is, is about the very ending, I at least love the fact that it ends on the shot of, of the bottle outside the window because you go back to that shot with a new reflection and, and you look at it with disdain now instead of looking at it as this kind of joke at how far alcoholism could be. It goes from being a hyperbole to being an absolute reality. Yeah, this would almost be like you look at something like, um, oh, wow, I'm blanking on uh, on the name of uh, uh, Requiem for a Dream. It is it is sort of like uh, you can you can clearly see the inspiration this film has on Requiem for a Dream, where it takes that same sort of start where you know the the drugs and alcohol is you know you can function with it into this all-consuming disease to there is no there is no lowest of the low that you can get there is always a lower point that you can get and we're gonna show you and you're gonna watch it and you're gonna hate every moment of it um and it's a it's a very disgusting film psychologically to watch because because Don Don really has no boundaries. He he's willing to throw the love of his life and his brother, the only two people who actually give a damn about him, under the bus just to have a drink. Yeah, when you see him basically scrounging around for coins, that's some of the ugliest stuff I've seen for this entire podcast, this entire segment, because you see him whimpering. It's almost a perversion that Ray Millen puts into this performance, which is why he's so genius at this, because you could have gotten somebody who's good. And as you said earlier with um, The Best Years of Our Lives, this is during a time when we had star power. You could have had this great person say, oh, alcohol, I'm into that. And then they drink it, and then you you were supposed to guess, okay, well, this guy's drunk, okay. But Ray Millen gets so filthy and just so disgusting disgustingly obsessed with this that you don't think that the water splashed onto his face to make him look like he's sweating. You feel like he is sweating. You feel like he is deathly ill and that he's going to vomit all over the place just out of nowhere because you don't even know what to expect with his illness. It's just so surreal, but it's so it's so damn hard-hitting and you can't help but realize that this is this is what it is. There's no fiction behind this. Even when Billy Wilder throws this bizarre nightmare sequence at you, and it looks pretty damn dated now. I don't know what it felt like back then. I still felt it. I don't care how fake it felt. It it still really hit me. I still got the message Wilder was trying to give, because I was just so sucked in through Wilder's directing, through Millen's acting, through the screenwriting. There's so many things that just made this addiction just as ugly as it actually is. Everything about this was real. Yeah, there's there's a real Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde battle going on between, you know, Don the writer and Don the alcohol alcoholic. Um, and, and there's some pretty strong metaphors in that going on where, you know, he feels that he only gets good ideas when he drinks, but the problem is he can't remember them because he gets so drunk 
when he's sober, he has no recollection of it. So it's this constant battle of trying to find that sweet spot for him where, you know, he feels that he's just one drink away from, you know, being this world-class writer that he's sort of believed himself that he has in him. Uh, and, and so it's sort of sad where, you know, you see him sort of trying to become a better writer and, you know, he's writing about his alcoholism and then, you know, he loses it all because you know what, there is no such thing as, you know, the perfect amount to drink where you're on cruise control afterwards. There is no such thing. And watching him, you know, chase that demon is very sad. Um, you were kind of talking about, um, the hallucination horror scene, I didn't think it was that bad. You know, the the camera tricks, the way, you know, they, they use a bat in this scene to sort of symbolize his fear because they talk about when you're going through withdrawals and you have hallucinations, a lot of people will see bats and it's like bleeding out of the wall uh, almost and starts terrorizing him in the room, even though it's not there. It's, it's a really powerful scene. And, you know, it's because he's going through um, DTs, uh, delirium tremens, which, you know, if, if people aren't familiar with, if you're an alcoholic, if you try to go cold turkey, uh, you basically will start hallucinating and you will be sweating profusely and be extremely sick. And you basically look like you're dying for several days. And uh, Millen gives a very convincing performance to that oh yeah don't get me wrong i wasn't saying that the scene was like hokey or anything but i feel like with the wrong director and the and the, everything else being wrong with that same scene it wouldn't have i wouldn't have bought it as easily is it's still a little bit dated but it's still pretty it's still pretty well done suffice to say without all of these things making it even more powerful now with that in mind i guess um, we've been looking at this dark film the last weekend and addiction and obsession, let's say. I think that's kind of a good look into our next film, which deals with a lot of that. This dark, grim look at how somebody could be so perverse. What do you think? Are you referring to the great Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca? Yes, I am. His only film, might I add, to actually win. Tell us a bit about it. Uh, okay, Rebecca comes from 1940, as I said, directed by the great, great Alfred Hitchcock, and uh, it's the story about this uh, young bride who marries this uh, elder playboy-type character who, uh, when they return home after their wedding and honeymoon to his uh, manor, it's sort of haunted by this playboy's dead former wife you know all the servants are still in love with her and you know everything about it still says rebecca 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 everywhere you go all the stationery, everything about it says rebecca which is the name of this this woman even though she's not a no one plays rebecca she definitely is a main character in this film and this came back came out back in 1940 and it stars Laurence Olivier and Joan Fontaine which you know is a is a pretty big who's who of uh movie leads of that time oh yeah absolutely and it's interesting that you say that Rebecca is a main character despite the fact that within our context of what the film is she doesn't even exist but she does fully because of all the time she's mentioned this looming atmosphere that you feel her presence, despite the fact that this isn't a supernatural film, it damn well feels like it is sometimes. And 
I love the fact that this is almost a reverse Mrs. Miniver where Mrs. Miniver is three people. Joan Fontaine is nameless in this film. She she is basically a nobody. She is just a female embodiment of what Laurence Olivier was was wanting and basically a reborn Rebecca who doesn't quite fulfill his needs and that kind of a character. I think it's a very cold film in the best way possible because everybody is, again, in a good way, frigid. They're soulless, yet they're in love. The, the, the house is just a house, yet it wants to eat the set and you alive. Just everything about this film is menacing, cold, and the fact that it's named after somebody who doesn't even exist in the film, yet the film itself is blatantly obsessed with. Just everything about this film is, again, in the best way possible, mean-spirited yeah i i really also appreciate uh the the level of practical practical effects going on too uh the opening sequence of mandalay which is the name of the house uh has a very you know they couldn't find a real manner to to fit what was needed so it was a a, a miniature and it was like a real dreaminess to it, the way it was shot with, you know, smoke and fog uh, billowing over top of it, which is always something, you know, when practical when practical effects are done right, they're far better than anything CGI is capable of. Um, and I think a lot of it has to do with with the way the performances are. I thought Joan Fontaine is, is pretty solid, you know, uh, in my mind, I... I I feel like I I discredit her a bit too much. She has a great, you know, childlike sense of wonder and fear to go with everything that's going on around her where uh, she doesn't really know what's going on. And, and her love of Laurence Olivier is more like a, a schoolgirl infatuation than actual true love. Absolutely. I, I might have been a much bigger fan of Joan Fontaine's performance because, um, as we'll get to our awards at the end of the episode, for a while she was actually my number one pick for Best Actress, which you'll find out who I picked later on. But for a while, that's what it was because I love the fact that she was atypical. Like, yes, she had that schoolgirl infatuation, as you were just describing, but it wasn't an over-the-top immature one it was just a naive one it felt realistic despite the fact that these characters almost felt like the plastic models on top of the cake at a wedding and not the actual couple themselves they felt so fake but it also felt real like these are just some people you didn't really want to get to know but in this film in the context of this space you did because Everything about this movie, again, was just cold and chilling that it fit perfectly. And I think that's difficult to do, to be distant, yet still likable and relatable. I think she she pretty much nailed it. Yeah, I, I think she was pretty solid. You know, I, I don't know why for some reason, but I, I just can't I, I just can't bring myself to say that she was absolutely great. I think. I think she was. My my problem, I think, with some of the performances is Laurence Olivier, who is, you know, widely considered to be one of the greatest, you know, actual technical actors ever, uh, especially with his work on the theater side of things. And it's a, it's a real shame that I was never able to see Laurence Olivier in the flesh, which I'm sure him doing Shakespeare would have been probably the highlight of my life. But I feel that sometimes his performance here is a little bit phoned in. 
where at times he he's really good giving it his all and at other times he's just so very blase where you know he's just sort of reading the lines and doing the bare minimum and just trying to coast on his charm uh, i wonder if some of it has to do with the fact that he wanted his uh, his then girlfriend at the time um, I'm blanking on on what her name is uh, to be the lead. Uh, so Vivian Lee, sorry, Vivian Lee. He wanted Vivian Lee to be the lead, and was upset and you know sort of treated um, Joan Fontaine poorly because of it. Who knows? Who knows? That might have been. I'd have to rewatch it again because, admittedly, this is my first time watching this film. Um, I'd have to watch it again and see if I pick up on what you were saying because you've seen it multiple times now, so that's something that you've you've noticed now. But I've got to say, in my first time watching it, it's already shot up there with my top five Hitchcock films. I think it was just terrific, though. But I, I, I'd have to watch it again to pick up on some things like that, perhaps, because like Gone with the Wind, this is also a, a David O. Selznick production. Um, I was so magnetically drawn to the style of it all that maybe I missed a lot of these little minor mistakes with it. But unlike Gone with the Wind, I feel Rebecca is very strong in all of these other storytelling elements. And even though Scarlett O'Hara is obsessed with with Ashley, this Ashley person, why won't he love me? You know, in this film, the obsession with Rebecca actually feels real and it doesn't doesn't feel annoying because it actually is about this person who doesn't even exist anymore ruling every little minute thing about this film why do the trees look so creepy why why are the characters so distant but so so close together at the same time all of this is about this person who doesn't even exist and i i know it's it's a bit of a stretch to compare both david ocell's like productions but they won a year apart from each other it was back-to-back wins for him. Uh, they both, again, have this fixation on a singular person, except in this case, I don't know if this is an insult to Gone with the Wind, but Rebecca's dead, and that felt more real, <laughs> that, this, this, kind of, this kind of passion for this person than this whole Ashley thing did. But, um, yeah. Well, yeah, go on. Well, I was just going to say, uh, I guess the, the other main thing to kind of talk about would be the maid, Mrs. Danvers, um, what what did you think of her performance? I will definitely go into this a little bit later, but I thought she was one of the highlights of the film. She, if anything, helped make this film feel a little bit more sinister and supernatural, apart from the sets and how cold everything was. It was how neutrally demonic she felt. And again, I'll go into it a, a little bit later, but absolutely she was a highlight, and she was something... her. Her cold-eyed, stone-gargoyle-faced performance of somebody who's so hateful definitely made it feel like there was this otherworldly element in Rebecca where, who knows, maybe a meteor would have fallen out of the sky and killed people just because this person insisted that it happened. She was definitely a, a very driving force in a film that already had such guilt plagued within it. What did you think? Yeah, she was definitely great. Um, played by um, Judith Anderson with this steeliness that 
the way she looks at the camera, you you can't help but sort of cower in fear and wonder if there really is some sort of paranormal activity going on. The way she talks about um, uh, the late Mrs. De Winter, the late Mrs. De Winter, Rebecca, and it's it just said with such reverence and elegance. And the fact that she barely blinks and she isn't shown actually walking, her feet aren't shown, so it looks like she's gliding and she sort of comes and goes into scenes and you barely notice, you know, a, a character will turn around and all of a sudden she'll be in the shot and she's like, whoa, all right, you're kind of creeping me out there. Or like you'll see her shadow uh, in the windows, even though, you know, the scene isn't about her it's just her presence is always there and it's it's sort of you can't really separate the two the the mrs danvers and the rebecca are 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 pretty intrinsically linked because of it i know i'd have to agree with you there and i guess wrap things up with this film yeah uh i'll go more to that later on but i agree with you definitely that if there was any form of a flesh embodiment of Rebecca, it would be her, this this maid who was obsessed with with the former and not the successor. You can't replace this woman. She was better than you will ever be. And you get that from every little fiber of her being. The way she talks to Joan Fontaine's character, the way she looks at everything, the way she just is. She just hates anything because her favorite person ever doesn't exist anymore. And I guess on that note, we're gonna go to um our top film, which oddly enough has to do with the impossibility of distancing yourself from somebody or from a place or from an idea. It is a classic film, one of the most quotable of all time, actually. And, well, if you're, any, if you're not a stranger to film and this era, you know what it is already. It is the absolutely powerful Casablanca, directed by Michael Curtis. It is a film that takes place in the Middle East during wartime. It is starring Humphrey Bogart with a great cast behind him as we look at a day or two within a bar or the town that surrounds it and how everything coincidentally just happens within the small, tiny space. But at the same time, it was destined to happen because, again, of that inability to actually separate from that of which you care about, whether it be a person, an idea, a passion, or a place. Here we go. Let's get into Casablanca. What did you think? Oh, I, I love it. This is this is probably the definition of a near perfectly made film. Um, little things like the seedy intro into Rick's Cafe is as intoxicating as the drinks that they serve there, and you're just sort of like thrown into this world of mystery and intrigue and you know the script is absolutely top notch um to people that aren't familiar with uh, a film phrase called Chekhov's gun which states that if uh if you see a gun sitting on a table in one scene you know later on in the movie that the gun will be fired the gun isn't there for no reason so the plot device is called Chekhov's gun if something is is said or mentioned or shown uh it is supposed to have relevance later on now now this is sort of a victim where a lot of uh pre-19 70s 60s films have where they'll have so many just throwaway lines and moments and characters but here 
everything is connected. Everything has perfect 100% synchronicity, and you just can't help but be amazed at the beauty of this film, uh, of how it's made, how everything about it is just so perfectly placed. Absolutely. Before I continue, I just want to correct myself. I, I'm, it might be wrong to consider Morocco part of the Middle East, Northern Africa, it more is. like, yes. Um, well, Morocco nonetheless. But yes, back to, back to the importance of, of all this. Casablanca, there's a reason why it is so quotable. You know, out of all the gin joints in town, you know, um, here's looking at you, kid. Uh, beautiful friendship. Um, usual suspect. Play it again, Sam. Etc. 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 It's not just well written, but ev- as as you said, every little thing has a purpose. It sets the mood. It displays how Humphrey Bogart's character shuns some people but accepts others. How how delicate it was during that time. It it sets up character. It sets up the setting. Every little thing in this film has a very specific purpose and. Out of the 10 films we watched, you don't see it too, too often, this kind of meticulous kind of piecing together, let alone this well done. And truth be told, I don't think we will see anything like this, or much like this, rather, for the rest of this project. I think we'll see stuff that comes close, or stuff that's even on par with it, which I guess we'll get into when we get there. But, you know, Casablanca is one of the few films that does it this perfectly there's a reason why it is so beloved because it is so full with so many nuances that it's real it's a real film and i've got to say as well i love the fact that it's a supposed romance film but it's not a movie where two people come together and they fall in love and everything's great no this is a movie that shows its love based on a mature decision of sorts let's say how how much do you really care about somebody in a pressing time like this where everything is touchy and everybody's moved on and everything's still a little bit ugly from how it was left off before? How much do you really care about that person? And that's why it's so significant because it isn't false like some of what we experience, like the ending of Gentleman's Agreement, for instance, or, you know, how silly Gone with the Wind got a little bit with that. With Casablanca, it is so real that anybody could find something to cling on to with this yeah uh <laughs> there, there's some even like little things like the dueling national anthems sort of highlight the absurdity of, of war in the unoccupied france that they're saying it is uh you know you've got the the, the nationals and the germans the, the french nationals and the germans all there and they're belting out their anthems in the bar it's just a hilarious scene um where like the Germans allowed themselves basically to be beaten by a bunch of uh, drunk patrons. Yeah. And it's not just funny. It's also very significant. As you said, everything's supportive, even the funnier moments, which there aren't many, but you know, every film needs some sort of comedic relief. Even those moments have a specific purpose and it's not just to be funny. You know, that's, that's a very proud moment for them, the fact that they that they were able to do that, despite the fact that it had repercussions, let's say. And, um, you know, there's just, there's so much to this film, like, oh, I'm, I'm blanking on his name. Okay, let's go to Wikipedia. German actor. Oh, the one that plays the officer? Uh, Peter Lorre. Oh, yes, him, yes. 
Hungarian, my mistake. He's just been in, in German films. Peter Lorre's character, he isn't in it for very long, but his character is a fantastic, fantastic lead into the shitstorm that is him seeing his lost loved one for the first time in ages. You know, Isla comes in, or Ilsa comes in, and everything is suddenly goes amok. How does how does Rick respond to this? But, you know, Peter Lorre's character is a great lead into this because you see, you see how manipulative Rick can be with this power. He's the, he owns the place. He can do virtually whatever he wants with it. No questions asked. So when you see him being friendly with somebody like Peter Lorre's character for a little while, and then you see him completely turn around and, you know, suddenly he, there's no safety anymore for this guy. He's, he's been ratted on and everything's done for him. That alone makes you think Rick has the power to do anything. Let's get the story started. Here comes Ingrid Bergman. Suddenly, now we're unsure of what Rick can really do to this person because he has such a distaste for the past with this person. So even that alone is just a great contrast and, and comparison of things to come. How will he react in this scenario? You know, because everything is just so well defined and just so well put together. Yeah, I thought the only real downside for me was Humphrey Bogart's acting. I thought it was a little stiff and wooden. Um, I know he's capable of better because of things like Treasure of Sierra Madre, but that just might be, you know, an unfortunate side effect of the Hollywood star system sort of thing where he's very monotone at times. I think the flashback scenes of him being in France with Ilsa when they're falling in love, I think he does a great job being happy and showing plenty of emotions, but I know I've been told, I've argued with people about how, you know, that's his character. He no longer cares about anything. Nothing can bring him happiness anymore. But I think there's still, there still should be some more shades of what he has. And I don't think he offers that up. So that's, that's the only real ding for me that sort of removes it from, you know, best all time movie for me. I would disagree with you. And I have off, off, um, off the podcast already, uh, I, I think he does a great job, but I will say I see where you're getting at because this goes back to what we were saying before where the leads didn't really get down and dirty. You know, you don't really see anything happening to Bogart's suits. You know, he's always well-dressed well and, and clean, even in the grittier moments, like nothing bad happens to him. So I could see why because he's an anchor of sorts, but he doesn't do anything to really stretch what he can do. He, he kind of just is who he is, which I still think he does a great job, but I can see where you're coming from, even though I will respectfully disagree. Um, I, I do. It, it does go back to what we were saying about the, the lead actors in this era, for sure, though.
Um, now, I guess moving on to our last bit, because that was our, our countdown, let's do our awards. Now, it was super easy to figure out who best pitcher was because we both put Casablanca as number one, much like um, the last time we did this where uh, it, happened, uh, it happened one night, ended up being our, our very unanimous decision. And, and you know we just had so much praise. I don't. I don't really have anything different to say other than the fact that technically this is this is as close to a perfect film that can be made. Yeah, it's one of the all time greats, and rightfully so. And you know we have a lot of films that are of that caliber that didn't win Best Picture. You know we have Citizen Kane, we have Raging Bull, um, etc. We do have some which we will get into later on, like The Godfather's Part One and Two, for instance, that that did get that, that recognition, but it's just nice that we were able to touch upon one so early on with Casablanca. You can't really go wrong with it because it is such an early example of what cinema could have been like. And again, I wish I could have witnessed this at the time of, because seeing something this, this well done and this masterful at that time when it first came out, because really any other film that came after it in, within the context of this podcast anyways, wasn't even close, I would say, in terms of how masterful it was, even if they were good or if they were okay. Now, to witness something like that back then and just see this bar physically being set up right before your eyes, it must have been truly astounding. I, I agree. Um, now, moving on to Best Actor, it's another one we're, we're unanimous about. Uh, you're going to hear that again later. Uh, but we both think Ray Milan uh, for The Lost Weekend was well-deserving for, uh, for Best Actor of this decade. Yes, absolutely. Now, we went into a little bit of his, his illness being portrayed and how, how real and ugly the performance was. But aside from that, like, do you have anything extra to add? Because um, I, I think there's a lot that could be said at, that could be pulled out of this character. I just wanted to see if you had anything on your end. Uh, I, I just think, you know, if you want to look at great classic performances, he, he should easily be one that should be looked at. He, he carries the whole movie by himself. And most of the time, it's when he has scenes with other people, they're sort of dropping in and out of 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 the film for, you know, he'll have one scene with one person and move on to the next. It's a bit of a revolving door. And the only constant is him. And there's, there's a few, you know, he's got those Oscar type scenes when he's in the, when he's in the mental hospital and when he's having his hallucinations back at home and things like that. And so he, he sort of nails the showy scenes without it being too in your face. And then, you know, he brings a whole bunch of different shades there, there's a touch of humor. There's a lot of desperation. You know, you can, you can see the seriousness and how much this all matters to him. There's a, there's a whole bunch of layers going to him, which you can really appreciate. Yeah, this is probably one of the first, if not the first, films that we've covered that was basically a one man show where this was revolving around him, and it was supposed to be, um, not to, not to, you know poop on Gone with the Wind's parade for a billionth time, but you know, in this film it was supposed to be, and he carried it with such ease, but at the same time it looked like it was an absolute struggle, even though you know that this was just with with uh, professionalism. Yeah. Um, and then Best Actress, we both agreed for Greer Garson for uh, Miss Miniver, but I think for, for different reasons. I, I personally felt that 
the women in this decade didn't really stand out a lot. Maybe, you know, if I, if I was to go with a runner up, it'd probably be Joan Fontaine from Rebecca. Um, so it was almost a bit of a default win. So I'll let you sort of plead the case of why you believe that she was the best. And I shall. And it's interesting to know that we both thought um, Joan Fontaine was, was a second, I guess for different reasons as well. Now, Greer Garson. Now, one of my all-time favorite performances is Sophia Loren for Two Women. And that's because it's a film that dives into so many things. There's humor, but there's also severe devastation. And it's interesting to see, like, that was seen as, like, this powerhouse performance that was one of the first international wins, especially for an acting category. It might have actually been the first. Um, But to know that something roughly around 20 years happened earlier with Greer Garson's character, it's a a bit surprising because I didn't expect something that detailed to have come through this. this, That's another reason why this, this project is so interesting. I didn't expect it to have happened so early on. Greer Garson's character. She's this motherly role. She assures the family in, in the film, and she assures us that everything will be okay. When it's not okay, she's strong. She's as strong as she can be. She fights, she fights, she fights. Everything's okay. She guides us. She smiles with us. And then the ending happens. And when you see her distraught, and she nails it. She nails when she, she just can't hold on anymore, similarly to Sophia Loren and to women. When you feel that, I, I don't know about you, but I died a little bit inside because that's what I knew. Oh, my God, this is over. We, we have been crushed just like this woman has been crushed. There, there was no ifs, ands, or buts because once this driving force of the movie collapsed underneath the weight of how severe war can get, that was it. It was game over. We collapsed with her. I don't know if you felt the same way, but I was totally sucked into everything that Greg Arson did. That's that's a pretty good argument, and you know, I, I don't think I could word it better. So if you if you like the movie, then this is obviously what what people will probably see from him. Now, supporting actor, we finally differ on things, but only only for for very for very small things uh i ended up choosing lionel barrymore from you can't take it with you uh mostly just because his performance was just so so charming and so full of life that you you can't help but love him he was in uh, grand hotel from our first episode and and he was someone that i noted really stood out for being fantastic um for the few moments he was on, he he has a much larger part in this movie, uh, very close to being a lead. Um, but he just, everything he's in, he just, you, you can't help but warm your heart. Now I, I sort of went, you know, maybe it's because I went with it because comedy and, and lighthearted things are usually overlooked by the Academy unfairly at times. So maybe that's why I went with them. But I think your choice of going with John Garfield from gentlemen's agreement is, is a damn fine choice. And I had a very difficult time choosing between the two of them. Yeah. I don't blame you because uh, you went with a really solid choice yourself. There was a lot of dynamic as well there where it wasn't for the same reason as Greer Garson. You know, you still had comedy, but then you had severity as well, which, you know, again, for different reasons. But, you know, that was well portrayed there with John Garfield. It's 
John Garfield as Dave in Gentleman's Agreement is more or less this this assurance that what the film is trying to say has 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 a greater context within somebody who's actually part of the community. He's just He's this nod and a head shake that's behind you. He's almost like a guardian angel that won't judge. He just witnesses. And he doesn't even have to do much. He just sells so much with just how real he feels. He doesn't have to have like a screaming performance or, you know, a very dramatic scene. Something happens and, you know, he's there and he sells every point that the movie tries to say. When Gregory Peck turns around and says, is this what it's like? He says, no, it's worse. He doesn't have to yell it. He doesn't have to go into a big monologue as to why it's worse. He says one line, you believe it, and it sells the point of that big emotional moment. Now, there are one or two parts where he does have like an emotional scene, which I won't spoil for those who haven't watched it, but you know, even then, it just feels real and it feels like it comes from a place of rage as opposed to, I have to act big, let's act big. You know, John Garfield is, is a real person with a kind heart that you know has been hurt enough times to not feel it anymore, but he hasn't forgotten how to feel. I think it was a very naturalistic performance and a great example of what a supporting actor is like without trying to upstage the lead. Yeah, he, he is absolutely phenomenal um, and, and a solid choice that I can't argue with. Now, supporting actresses, uh, I decided to take a, a little bit of a different turn and give it to Teresa Wright, not for one film, but for both films that she was in, because I thought uh, she was equally great in both Miss Miniver and The Best Years of Her Lives, and her characters are not totally dissimilar, so it's I thought it was only fair to kind of give it to her. She, she has this great, youthful, vivacious energy about her while still having the right amount of in a sense, it's that, it's that contrast of being world weary, but still young and fresh. And it's such a shame that she, her first three films that she was in, she was Oscar nominated for them all. Those two, uh, which she actually won in Miss Miniver <clears throat> for Best Supporting Actress. And she was also nominated for The Pride of the Yankees, her first movie. After that, she did basically nothing of importance for the rest of her career, which is a shame because it's such a great start and i just wish that she sort of had the legacy that uh so many of the other other females in in this decade sort of had uh so i it's more about me kind of giving her her due uh and and wishing that she she had more light shone on her you went on a bit of a different route uh who did you pick well you went with uh the wanting to shine a light on somebody which I think is a great use of this podcast, um, especially to show like your your passion for film and the ability to have a voice with with voicing these these kinds of things. And I think you chose pretty wisely. But as you wanted to show a light, I wanted to I actually wanted to turn off the light and expose the shadows of Judith Anderson's performance as the evil, evil, evil housekeeper who basically was almost part of a clue game she was that bad she could have been the person who killed you know rebecca you know she was this this demon this monster but at the same time you felt a little bit sorry for her despite the fact that she was this despicable toward the force because 
You felt like she devoted her life to this woman. She can't separate herself. But that doesn't excuse her for what she does. Again, she is this gargoyle that, as you said, floats around the building. She turns her head, not like a human, but like a machine that's been orchestrated to do so. She is somebody who, ha- who was taught to obey, and she only obeys one person. And again, with all of the great things in Rebecca, she is definitely one of the best because she enhanced how sinister everything was just by being an awful person. That's all you need sometimes in life to, for something to get ruined. Everything could be great. But then you have somebody who's awful, and suddenly it's all gone. In a film where everything is already dark, when, when Judith Anderson tries to drive you know, jo- Joan Fontaine's character insane, or she, she ends up driving us insane as well because we feel the hurt there. Everything's already dark. We don't need this, this despicable nature from this person. But we get it, and we are. We feel as low and hateful of ourselves as Joan Fontaine does, thankfully or unthankfully, due to this monstrous but great performance. Yeah, she is pretty fantastic. I think I think while the the leading ladies sort of suffer this decade, the supporting ladies are quite good, you know. I would consider Ingrid Bergman Casablanca a supporting actress since it's more Humphrey Bogart's movie and she's pretty solid. Uh, and you also have Myrna Loy in The Best Years of Our Lives. There, there's a whole host of them that uh, that really should, should get their due. Um, because you know you don't want to seem like oh you know we just don't appreciate a good female performance when we see it when we really do it's it's just unfortunately this decade was more dominated by male dominated movies uh, I want to give a big thank you to once again to the Ooh Baby Gimme Moors for their music being in this episode, uh, much like it was on last week's episode. They're a Toronto Afropunk dance rock band. They're going to be playing at Riot Fest. They had an opening slot at Oceaga this year. They're doing big things. They played at uh, Jay-Z's Made in America Festival a couple years ago. So uh, so they're definitely a name to kind of be aware of and, and expect to see them sort of blow up uh, – in the next little while. Uh, where can all of our listeners find you, Andreas? You can find me on Twitter at Andreas Babs. And you can find me on Twitter at DGAPA. And you can also find the show at ContraZoomPod. Uh, please go to the website and you'll see all of our show notes where we'll have our complete rankings of these films along with who we gave the awards to and also links to buy the Ooh Baby Give Me More's music. So please go and do that. Support some great local Toronto bands. Uh, And thank you so much for listening. Uh, Until next time. Thank you.